Hello and welcome to the Bar of Ireland's Justice Week podcast series. This year, Justice Week Ireland is focusing on law and technology. And in this episode, Aoife McNichol, criminal barrister and member of the Bar of Ireland, speaks with her colleague and fellow barrister Gerard Grork on artificial intelligence and criminal justice. Later in the episode, we will be joined by Michael O'Flaherty, director of the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights, to speak on what impact artificial intelligence will have on fundamental rights. Hi, my name is Aoife McNichol and I'm here with my colleague Jared Grork and we are going to talk about artificial intelligence and what that means in the legal profession these days. Hi Jared, thanks a million for joining us. Hi Aoife, delighted to be here, thanks for having me. So you're the expert on artificial intelligence. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'd go that far, I've certainly learned an awful lot about it in the last couple of weeks but um, yeah it's an interesting area, I think I think we all need to look at it a little bit more as, as time progresses. Well, if anyone's like me, um, I hear the words artificial intelligence and I think of films like The Matrix and the machines are taking over. <laughs> um, so so what is it? And um, I suppose just to break it down um, on a basic level first. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, first of all, I think a lot of people, not including yourself, may have misconceptions about what artificial intelligence is and what it can actually do. Uh, everything we've seen about machines like Terminator and the Matrix and so on, that's something called artificial general intelligence, which is, I suppose, the situation where machines learn to think for themselves, they learn to improve themselves, and eventually there's a, a runaway train effect where they become so much more powerful than humans that there's nothing we can do to stop them. Most commentators believe that artificial general intelligence will never be achieved. So it's not something we need to worry about right now. Artificial intelligence is really just machines demonstrating intelligence as opposed to humans demonstrating intelligence. That's the, the simplest way of putting it. It's a, a phrase that has had different meanings over the years um, because of advances in technology. I mean, there was a time when something like optical character recognition would have been described as artificial intelligence, but it's so widespread now that it's really fallen out of the AI sphere and it's just something that we take for granted. And anyone who who uh, works paperlessly now, OCR is a, a huge tool that we use it uh, is. in terms of those scanned PDFs and, and being able to search them. Yeah, but it's just now seen as a tool, whereas when it was first I suppose when it was first invented, people were amazed by the fact that a machine could read a document and figure out what the document said. So it's it's no longer, I suppose, such a big deal. We're, we're living through, I think, the third wave of AI hype at the moment. It started in the 1960s. There were big efforts to move things forward. At that stage, they didn't really work out. There was a second wave, I think, in the 80s. And now we're into what they're calling the third wave. I think everybody recognizes there's a lot of hype around AI at the moment. What's different this time around is that there's a lot more data for the AI to work from. And as we'll see, data is really what's what's the most important part of it. But secondly, computer processing power has massively improved. So it becomes that bit more feasible to run AI systems on a, on a large scale. And in terms of that data, then, um, I suppose, how important is that to this concept of artificial intelligence um, and, and where the data is coming from? It's extremely important that the data be, that it be accurate, in other words, um, and that it not be biased in and of itself. 
So we will look at examples from the states where they've used AI in various criminal justice institutions. And the problems they've found there is that because the data that they're working from came originally from judges or from other decision makers who themselves were biased, that bias becomes baked into the data that the AI is using and the whole cycle starts all over again. So it's, it is extremely important that the data be clean um, and, and accurate. So it's as fallible as how we would view perhaps how some judicial decisions are made. Yeah, we have to be careful how we approach this, but um, it, it's certainly fallible. Um, it can certainly make mistakes and has been shown to have made mistakes. Uh, I suppose when it comes down to it, the debate centers around whether AI will make more mistakes or less mistakes than human judges. And so... Artificial intelligence then, I suppose, how is it broken up? Uh, what are the different parts to it um, in terms of understanding how it works? Well, I think the two biggest areas at the moment would be machine learning and natural language processing. But just to give you an idea of how it all works, basically it works by taking an enormous data set and analyzing that and trying to make predictions based on what it can see in the data that it already has. So Let's take a really simplistic example. Let's say you want to build a, an AI system that will predict the price of a secondhand car. So the first thing you need to do is to give it a set of data. So let's say you get all of the information you can about secondhand car sales in Ireland for the last five years. Okay, you're going to need the, the make of the car, the model of the car, the fuel type, um, uh, probably the year and possibly the mileage. Right there, we've got five factors that are going to be very important in determining the, the, the sale price of a car. You put all of that data into a spreadsheet, you feed it into your machine, and now you've got a machine with the right algorithm that can predict the secondhand price of any car within that five-year range. And we spoke about the, the cleanliness of the data and the accuracy of the data. If, for example, you have accidentally put in a sale price of one car in your data set, you've accidentally put the sale price in as 100,000 euro instead of 10,000 euro, then that is going to skew the results. So the problem there is that as we move into bigger and bigger data sets, it's going to be very difficult to spot individual errors that might skew the results. You're simply going to be given a result and you're going to have to trust that the machine knows what it's doing and has calculated the right result. The other thing that's important, and we, 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 you can think about how that secondhand car model might move over into, say, risk assessments for accused persons or anything like that, but it's the amount of detail that we've included. I mean, we haven't included things like the transmission type, whether it's manual or automatic. And I think we all know that will make a difference to the sale price of a car, but we haven't put that detail into the, into the database. We haven't put in optional extras like cruise control or electric windows or whatever you're having yourself. So the more detail we can put into the data base, the better the predictions are going to be. And that then becomes a, a question of how much is too much and how little is too little. But the last thing, and this is where the human element comes back into it, is that each data point has to be given some kind of a weighting. In other words, how much weight is the system supposed to give to this individual factor? And in our secondhand car model, if you said to the system, look, the most important factor here is the year, does that mean that the system then is going to compare a 2019 Ford Mondeo with a 2019 Ferrari 
before it would compare that 2019 Mondeo with, say, a 2018 Mondeo. And now we, we know as humans that the comparison with the 2018 Mondeo is going to be more accurate, but the machine doesn't know that. It simply goes on what you tell it, what needs to be weighted. If you tell it that the make and model is more important than the year, then is it going to compare, say, your 2019 Mondeo with a 2022 Mondeo instead of comparing it with a 2019 Passat? And these are just examples that I'm, I suppose, coming up with off the top of my head. I don't know if there's any comparison between a Mondeo and a Passat, and I'm not making any comment on that. <laughs> but all of the factors that are in the database, the, the algorithm has to be told what weight to give to those factors. And when you start to apply that to humans and decisions that relate to humans in relation to um, bail or sentence or risk assessments in relation to reoffending, it becomes very, very important. Not only that you get those factors right, but that other persons who are either using the system or being fed through the system can see what's going on. There has to be a certain amount of transparency in the algorithm itself. In effect, it's just, it's large scale statistical analysis. It's the kind of thing that statisticians and actuaries have been doing for years at this stage. There's nothing new about it. I suppose the only new thing is that the machines can analyze massive amounts of data, which it, I think it just wouldn't be physically possible for an individual statistician or an individual actuary to get through that amount of data. So that's that's the real difference. You mentioned there the these pillars of uh, natural language processing and machine learning. Um, what are they? What do they actually mean? The machine learning, in my mind, is a bit of a misnomer because the machine doesn't really learn anything in the way that we understand learning, which is having new experiences and being able to respond to them and possibly incorporate them. But there's, there's an element of it. Uh, machine learning is really just the ability of a machine to analyze data and work out patterns in the data. And it can then calculate correlation between different data points. So to take a, an example, I mean, most of us know how to convert miles into kilometers, right? You divide by five, you multiply by eight. Um, so let's imagine that we have a machine that doesn't know that equation. It doesn't know how to convert one to the other. But all you give it is a table of distances in miles on one side and in kilometers on the other. You might only need to give it three or four of these distances. And you give it its algorithm and it goes looking at the data and it works out on its own what the relationship is between miles and kilometers. And even though you haven't told it how many kilometers there are in 17.5 miles, it will now know how to convert any number of miles into the equivalent in kilometers. And that's because it has simply worked out the relationship between miles and kilometers based on the data you've given it. And that's why it's called learning. It's because it has learned how to convert miles to kilometers. Um, the, the whole area of machine learning, it does get a little bit more complicated than the example I've given. But in the end, it all boils down to machines analyzing massive amounts of data and learning how to do things based on the patterns that it recognizes. And the natural language processing, is that the programming language or the language that it's fed? Natural language processing, I suppose, is a, is a much more difficult area. It's the likes of, I mean, we have things in our lives now like Alexa and Siri and speech recognition where we can talk to our phones or our computers and it will transcribe what we're saying into text. Alexa and Siri 
just two examples that I'm going to use. They behave as if they understand what you're saying to them. But the reality is that they're more like parrots than people. What they're doing is they're recognizing your speech. In other words, they're converting your speech into text, but they're not actually understanding what you're saying. And what they're doing is they're taking the text that uh, they have converted your speech to, and they're then analyzing it using an algorithm to try and figure out, to try and predict what it is you're trying to get them to do. So there is not actually no understanding on their part. Well, I, I can actually attest to that because they have serious difficulty with, with the Donegal accent. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do. They have difficulties with accents. And I have heard a story of someone who asked uh, one of these voice assistants, their request was, uh, hey, play a good song. And the, the response that came back was, I'm sorry, I cannot find a good song in your music. Uh, they were very offended by this, but the reality was that the system had gone looking for a song that was called A Good Song, and because it couldn't find one, it responded in that way. Um, the problem, I suppose, is, is natural language processing is where technologists are trying to teach machines to understand what we're saying and understand what we mean. And the difficulty is that understanding meaning requires more than just understanding dictionary definitions and understanding the grammatical rules around sentence construction. Um, we need a certain amount of real world knowledge and a certain amount of common sense reasoning. And, and that's where the machines fall down. You take a sentence like, um, the Garda held out his arm and stopped the truck. Now, you know what I mean by that. If I say Superman held out his arm and stopped the truck, it conjures up a, a completely different image. And the reality is that we know uh, that Gardaí have certain powers. We know that trucks are driven by drivers who can see Gardaí. We know that trucks can be brought to a halt by a driver applying the brake. And we assume that most truck drivers, if they see a guard holding up his arm, will respond to that by applying the brakes and bringing the truck to a halt. Whereas with Superman, he just holds up his arm and stops the truck. <laughs> the problem for machines is that they have no way of differentiating between the two sentences. So as matters stand, I think natural language processing, it, it hasn't advanced a whole lot. We do have things like Alexa and Siri and various other technologies that behave as if they understand what you're saying to, to them, but the reality is that they don't. So that is... Just, I suppose it's another example of how the AI lacks human common sense and it lacks kind of real world understanding. It can be programmed very narrowly to do individual items, but it really can't go very far beyond that. And that's again, why people don't believe that uh, artificial general intelligence is, is ever going to materialize. So in terms of where we might come across artificial intelligence and um, the criminal justice system in particular, we've heard tell from other jurisdictions of the use of things like, you know, anticipating bail um, decisions or sentencing decisions on an artificial intelligence basis. I suppose, what, what does this look like? What does that mean where we would use AI uh, to determine whether bail is granted or not, or whether what sentence is given? I suppose, as, as we've said, AI is really about predicting outcomes. And that's realistically what judges are trying to do when they're deciding on 
bail applications and when they're deciding on sentencing decisions. I mean, bail can be refused if the judge feels there's a risk of a further serious offence being committed or if there's a risk that the accused won't turn up for trial or if there's a risk that the accused will interfere with witnesses or interfere with evidence. So judges are constantly assessing and trying to predict whether or not an accused is or is not going to do that. Um, so there's, there's risk assessment there and algorithms can be quite useful in assessing that risk. When it comes to sentence, I think we've all had experience of a probation report that indicates the risk of reoffending on the part of the individual accused. And that again is a, an assessment that's carried out by the probation service, taking an awful lot of different characteristics into account, an awful lot of different data points, as we would call them today, um, in relation to a particular accused. So first of all, because Judges have to assess these risks and make these predictions. There's an argument that artificial intelligence could help them. Um, and when it comes to things like the probation service risk assessment, the, the volume of information that they have to take into account in order to come up with their risk assessment is, is quite vast. And it's something that could potentially be used in an algorithmic way uh, to help them get that work done a bit more quickly in the future. I mean, they have their, I think it's the LSIR level of service inventory revised. It's a, it's, it's a tool that they use where they uh, answer a huge number of questions about the individual's criminal history, their education, their employment, their financial status, their marital status, their family situation, their accommodation, their leisure and recreation interests. Uh, the company they keep, whether they have alcohol or drug problems, whether they have any emotional problems, whether they have any personal problems, what their attitude is to life in general. And, and they give people a score of, you know, you give them a point if the answer is yes, and you don't give them a point if the answer is no, and you, you work through it. You can easily see how that could be done by a computer if it had all of the data in relation to the individual. Doesn't that raise a problem, though, because ultimately we've all seen these probation reports where they say, you know, following on from the risk assessment, they're a moderate to high risk. But we've also seen the comments by the probation officer where having met the, the particular person, that there are other factors that they've, um, I suppose, qualified that assessment with. And that we've seen the impact of that then in the ultimate recommendations to the court. So, I mean, how far, there, there has to come a line where the AI can't go any further because there's something, I suppose, brought to bear by that meeting a person and I suppose just what impact does that have on a decision? It's hard to qualify that in, in a way that a, a machine or a, a, a program would be able to recognize. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And you've, you've nailed the point. I think there was a, a study done um, by, well, it certainly included my former classmate, uh, Claire Hamilton, who's now in Maynooth, but she was one of the authors of the article and it was looking at the attitude of probation officers to the use of this specific tool and asking them, how constrained they felt to stick to the tool and how useful they found the tool. Um, I've read the ensuing article, but in effect, in summary, I suppose what I'd say is that they found that the more experienced a probation officer was, the less likely they were to strictly follow the recommendations of this particular tool. So it looks like something that an inexperienced probation officer might really rely heavily on. 
But the more experience they get and the better they become at judging individual people by, by meeting them, uh, because we, we, we can change from one week to the next. Our outlooks can change. We've all been to that. I'm turning over a new leaf where our habits have changed completely. Um, and a probation officer can really judge whether there's any reality in that, whether it's simply a, 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 some kind of a facade that's being put up for the purpose of sentencing. And as you say, they can bring their personal experience to bear in assessing an individual and maybe push the tool to one side and say it's it's important and I'll take it into account, but it's not going to be the only determining factor. So, yeah, I, I agree. How, how far can we take this and to what extent should the algorithm be the sole determining factor? And the same could be said then in terms of, say, bail conditions, because, again, most bail applications have various degrees of the same type of arguments. It might be a bench warrant history is a particular problem or um, intimidation of a witness or whatever it is. But then there's other things that may or may not come up in a bail application, like perhaps um the intimidated witness giving evidence, for example, and the impact that might have on a judge. It's Again, it's very hard to um, to quantify that type of input. And again, it's the same issue as with the probation reports that it could, could only bring a judge so far in terms of their decision making before they would then have to bring their own judgment to bear. Yeah, I, I suppose it, 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 it should be something of a blended approach certainly at first if it is ever going to be introduced it should be very much a blended approach so that people can assess how it's working and how accurate it is and uh, whether we like or don't like the results i suppose ultimately some would argue that particularly some accused who have come in front of courts would argue that a judge is you know that judge is biased against me or that judge isn't taking into account these factors which i think are much more important than the factors the judge has actually taken into account and we have to bear in mind that judges are human. Um, nobody would ever pretend that all judges are perfect. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of the judges, but the reality is that people have their own life experience. They have their own uh, impressions of people and they have their own inbuilt biases, some of which they're aware of and some of which they're not aware of. So uh, I suppose if AI was ever to be introduced on a blended, some kind of a blended approach, it might then become possible to assess whether the AI was making better or worse decisions than individual judges. Now, I, I don't really know how that would practically be done, but uh, that's what we're, we're, we might be looking at. And that's the real issue at the end of it all is whether AI can make a better decision than a judge can make. Personally, I don't think it can, but I'm certainly curious and interested to see how far it can be taken. And have other jurisdictions introduced this to any degree? Yes, uh, the US has definitely been using these risk assessments for pre-trial bail hearings and for sentencing hearings for, for some time. And I suppose they've had some difficulties. There was a fellow called Paul Zilli. He was due to be sentenced for stealing a lawnmower. And... Uh, as they do in the US, there were discussions between prosecution and defense. You know, some kind of a plea deal was worked out. The defense felt one year in prison would be enough for him with a little bit of post-release supervision. The prosecution thought, yeah, one year, one year should be fine, a little bit of post-release supervision. They went to the judge with the deal that they'd made, and the judge looked at the risk assessment. And he said, oh, he's much higher risk than I thought. I'm giving him two years and three years post-release supervision. So his sentence was doubled based on an algorithm that he couldn't examine. 
Um, so his lawyers then asked if they could have access to the algorithm to see why it came up with this particular risk assessment. And because the risk assessment tool was provided by a private company, the private company said, we're sorry, you can't see the risk assessment. It's a trade secret. And there was no way for the defense to have a look at it. Now, luckily for them, an investigative journalist got interested at this point and did a, I don't know, six, seven, eight month study where I think she went to Florida where records are easier to access. And she identified something like 12,000 people who had been put through that system. And the system had made predictions as to how they were going to behave at the end of their sentence. And she was able to find 7,000 of those people to find out whether the prediction had been correct or incorrect. So an exhaustive kind of a study, but the only thing that could be done where uh, access to the algorithm couldn't be secured. And her study found that the algorithm was getting it wrong 40% of the time. So that was quite concerning, but even more concerning from the journalist's perspective and from the perspective of Americans in general, was that in that 40% of the time that it was getting it wrong, it was twice as likely to predict, to wrongly predict that a black person would commit further offenses. And it was twice as likely to incorrectly predict that a white person would not. That is frightening. So those, it is frightening. And that kind of bias and I suppose racist bias was built into the system from the start. Probably not deliberately, but just based on the data that it was crunching. And again, we don't know what data it was using. We don't know what algorithm was being applied. But we do know that the results were a little bit, a little bit frightening. I suppose that's that's where I, I get very fuzzy when I think of this subject in the context of the criminal justice system. Where would they be drawing the data from? Um, like say for to go back to the I think the bail application is probably the the simplest one. Well, simple in relative terms. Like where would they be drawing that that data from? From previous bail um, applications and um, where is that data? Like there is no handy place in order to access that data. And how would that data be put together for the purposes of an algorithm being created? Yeah, well, you would assume that if it was going to be a system operated in Ireland, the data would first and foremost have to be Irish data. It wouldn't be much use for us to get onto that private company in the States and ask, could we use theirs? Thankfully. Thankfully. Um, and that raises the question in my mind, I don't know how much uh, digital recording is done by either on Garda Síochána or the DPP's office or the court service of all of these data points that would be needed about the nature of the offence, the offender's background, their well, their date of birth, and all the other things that we've mentioned in the in the probation risk assessment tool. I don't know if any of that information is available in digital format. And even if it is, it's probably unstructured. So it's not going to be very easy to feed it into an algorithm that needs to know what each data point refers to. So unless, as you quite rightly point out, unless there is a readily available data set of a significant amount of historical data that doesn't contain any biases or prejudices that may have been expressed by individual judges, Gardaí, or um, uh, prosecuting solicitors in the DPP's office, then 
we can have as many algorithms as we like, but we won't have any data to use them with. So what you're saying is we're safe enough for the time being. <laughs> we, we seem to be safe enough for the time being, but I, I, have, I, I don't have any notion of how much of this data mm -hmm. is being stored. Mm -hmm. And in terms of then investigation tools, like, for example, policing tools and how they would use predictive profiling or um, predictive anything, I suppose, in, in terms of, uh, you know, investigating any crime. It's not something that would be widely used in Ireland, I don't think. Um, certainly, well, I can't think of, of anything off the top of my head, but is this something that is used in other jurisdictions? Um, it certainly is. Uh, it occurred to me there, they use an element of predictive policing whenever electric picnic is on. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Moneyball. Yes. It's, a, it's effectively a movie about baseball, but it's about sabermetrics. And the man who recognized that you could use statistical data to determine whether or not a baseball player was going to have a, a good career or going to be good at certain things. And that's effectively where predictive policing started. A criminologist in the States called Craig Ushida realized that sabermetrics, or at least the, the principles of sabermetrics, could be applied equally to policing. And if he had enough crime data, then he felt he would be able to predict where crimes would next occur. So predictive policing, I suppose, it's about using historical crime data to try and predict uh, where crime will next occur. And there have been studies of its effectiveness, and they appear to have shown that the systems can successfully predict twice as much crime as a human crime analyst. I mean, in practice, what happens is that the police go to a specific area or location where the tool is predicting crime is going to happen, and they stand around there and try and prevent crime or detect crime. So it, it, it has been in operation. It's being used, I think it's called PredPol, which is predictive policing, but it sounds a bit like predator or something like that. Uh, that's been in use in the States. The criticisms of it are that it results in continuous targeting of underprivileged areas and it results in a feedback loop where the predictive policing system tells the guards, I'm predicting crime in this area, so go there. So the guards go there and because they're there, they can't be somewhere else. And by reason of them being there and not somewhere else, they're much more likely to detect crime in that location than they are somewhere where they're not. And they end up detecting crime there or preventing crime there. And that detection gets fed back into the system. And the system says, okay, well, maybe you should go there tomorrow as well. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly, exactly. And that, that becomes the difficulty. And that's, I suppose, the main criticism. There, there are also plenty of criticisms around privacy, uh, lack of accuracy, discrimination, and a lack of transparency in how the predictive policing algorithm is created or how it operates. And I suppose we've had predictive policing anyway. I mean, that's just studying the statistics again. It's just the question of whether this algorithm in that context, um, A, does a better job or B, does it quicker? Um, because, I mean, there's always been an element of um, whether it, whether it's anecdotal police information that comes in or intelligence that's gathered and how then the resources are deployed on foot of that. I mean, there are 
communities who would definitely say that there's a bias against them and that police are are looking in the wrong places, I suppose, for for where crime is, is happening. In terms of then other areas of policing and AI, this whole area of facial recognition, I mean, this is something that is coming up probably more so again in other jurisdictions, but how facial recognition is is used as a tool, um, much like CCTV is used as a tool um, in terms of evidence in a trial. First of all, how does facial recognition work? Um, and I suppose, is it properly um, categorized as artificial intelligence? It is properly categorized as artificial intelligence because it works by analyzing a huge data set. In reality, I suppose on the ground, when facial recognition is working, the first thing it does is it detects a face. So whether that's in a crowd of people or just a face on its own, the first thing it has to do is detect a human face. The next thing it does is it analyzes the face because I'm told that the face is separated into distinguishable landmarks that the scientists call nodal points. Uh, a human face has about 80 nodal points, things like the distance between your eyes, or the width of your mouth, the shape of your cheekbones, the width of your nose, the length of your jawline, all of this. And I think it needs about 14 to 16 nodal points to create a face print. And what it will do is it will take those measurements and it will convert them into numbers. And that entire numerical code is what becomes your face print. And what it then does is it runs that through the database of facial data that it holds to see if it can find a match. The, the algorithm side of it is really comparing the data that it's picked up from analyzing your face with whatever database it has all the information on. And for those of us who think that, you know, it might take a while to put a database like that together, I think just last November, Facebook said it was deleting its database. It had 1 billion face prints based on people being tagged in Facebook photographs. So, I mean, you think about governments, even the Irish government will probably have your photograph from your passport application, probably have a photograph from a driving license application, may have photographs from other things. Again, no problem really coming up with a face print from that. Uh, I think the last time I traveled to the States, which is many years ago now, I was a little bit taken aback when I arrived in the airport to be told that I had to have a retinal scan and have my photograph taken and I think have my fingerprints taken just to get through immigration. That was par for the course for everybody. So governments like that are collecting vast amounts of that data and it's it's there to be used. And I suppose it's it's not really a million miles away from how DNA evidence developed and fingerprint evidence. I mean, it's just a different iteration of the same thing. It's certain nodal points or, um, you know, we all know in terms of fingerprint evidence, for example, that it may or may not be a, a full match, but there are um, a, a significant number of, ma of points which are identical. And so it's, a, it's considered a positive. So, I mean, it's not a million miles away from that, that uh, the technology could develop for facial recognition to be admitted as evidence. We'll certainly see a move in that direction. I think the main question will be what weight is given to it as evidence. Is it simply something that's going to, you know, ground a reasonable suspicion on the part of a, an investigator who wants to make an arrest? 
uh, or is it going to be at the other end of the scale where it is capable of proving without corroboration that an individual was at a particular location or participated in a particular offence? It comes down to how accurate it is. And there are statistics from the US Department of Homeland Security that say that their facial recognition technology is getting it wrong about once in every 25 times. So that's one in every 25 people turning up in the States who's being turned away despite having valid travel documents because the facial recognition system thinks that they're somebody who they're not. Uh, it's also quite easy. Uh, I mean, this, this is something for all of the intending criminals out there. It's quite easy to fool a facial recognition system. When you think about the fact it's trying to measure the width of your mouth, if you simply grow a mustache that covers your lips, it's goosed. Uh, all of the nodal points around your eyes, if you wear reflective sunglasses, it's goosed. If you walk through a public area with a baseball cap on and your head down towards the ground, it can't see your face. So there are a lot of ways to get around it. But I mean, that's that's like saying DNA is no good because all you need to do is put on a pair of gloves or fingerprints are no good because they can they can be beaten. The reality is it could still be a very useful tool. We've talked about very frightening things, I have to say. <laughs> I, I was getting more frightened as we went along there. But just to bring it back to, um, you know, say a criminal practitioner in Ireland now, I suppose, is AI a thing of science fiction for, for us criminal practitioners? Or um, is there, you know, artificial intelligence that we could be using effectively in our practice? I don't think there's anything that we could use effectively in our practice. Unless we roll back the years a, a little bit, like we talked about optical character recognition, it used to be AI, it isn't anymore. There are, I suppose there are things like document automation technologies and stuff like that, that um, may once have been called artificial intelligence. And indeed, there could still be businesses that are calling it artificial intelligence. But th that kind of thing could be useful, um, particularly as we move towards a more digitized practice where a lot of our uh, briefs and so on are in digital format. So it's very easy to transfer data over. But because artificial intelligence has to work on the basis of really, a, realistically, a massive data set, uh, the practitioner in question would have to have a lot of that data or have access to that data in order to work some kind of an algorithm on it. I certainly, after 20 years, I, I don't have any particular record of the profile of my practice or the type of cases I've been involved in or the way that individual judges have been dealt have dealt with accused or what their what their view is I think we all find ourselves ringing if we're going off circuit or we're going to a location we're not familiar with or to appear in front of a judge we're not familiar with it's a phone call to a colleague to say what's that judge like on a b c and d or you know how will I get on on my damages or what's going to happen with that it's actual intelligence we're looking for <laughs> yeah real intel yeah the department of barrister homeland security but I think I don't know of any, say, small firms or sole practitioners who would have a data set that I can't even think of a data set that I would want to have to try and apply some kind of prediction tool to it. Um, maybe if I applied it to my income over the last five years, I might be able to predict what's happening in the future. But I think that would be uh, that would be dangerous. What I do think is important, though, is that practitioners become a little bit more familiar with the terminology and the technology itself. It's not about learning how a specific algorithm does what it does or learning where the data comes from or where the data is stored. Or it's not, not learning that, but it's learning, I suppose, how to critically assess an artificial intelligence system when you inevitably encounter one in practice, whether it's because a risk assessment has spat out a particular result or 
whether it's because a risk assessment has spat out a particular result or something like that, I think it's important to be able to look at the artificial intelligence tool and say, you know what, I want to investigate this. I want to interrogate this a bit further. And what I need to know are the following, you know, things like, as we've discussed, where's the data come from? How clean is it? How accurate is it? How detailed is it? What algorithm is being applied to it? Who designed the algorithm? What did they know about what they're doing? So just to be able to ask those questions, uh, it's probably too early in the process for us to be looking beyond that. But there certainly is evidence that uh, on Garda Shia have been using AI and algorithms in their work. But it's not clear whether they're using that for predictive policing yet. There was a report last year um, stating that they were using artificial intelligence really just to monitor their own IT systems. So they would see when there was an outage or when there was a problem. But the company that they were getting that service from would also be in a position to provide predictive policing type solutions. And Agar, the spokesperson at that stage, said that it they were looking at using artificial intelligence and algorithms for policing in the future. But it was, uh, quote, at an early stage of evaluation. So we'll we'll wait and see. We'll wait for a new pulse system first, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this could be it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jared. That was a whirlwind tour of uh, what is AI uh, for the criminal practitioner in particular. Um, and thanks a million for explaining it uh, and having a discussion around it. Thank you very much, Eva. Thanks for having me. Michael, you're very welcome. And thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thanks very much, Eva. It's a real pleasure. And I'm particularly happy to, to do it uh, with, with you guys back home. It's, it's always nice to be in contact. What is um, the, the Agency for Fundamental Rights? What is your, your brief as such? We're the uh, human rights advisory body of the EU, uh, wherever it's dealing with matters of so-called EU competence. Uh, and so we advise the EU institutions at the, the European Parliament, the European Commission, the Council, but also all the other bits of the EU system, like its agencies, which are increasingly important uh, on issues like asylum, migration and police, uh, as well, of course, as the member states themselves. So we also support the 27 member states uh, around these issues. Uh, we use the word fundamental rights because that's the term we use uh, for issues of human rights in the EU setting. We derive the name from the um, Magna Carta, which is the European Union Charter of Fundamental Rights. We're based in Vienna. We're about 150 people. Uh, we also do uh, highly applied research. We look at the use cases. What does using AI look like on a day-to-day -day basis in our society? And what human rights uh, issues does that trigger? And how best could the policy and the lawmakers respond? So that's what we call socio-legal research. We do training, of course, uh, we do capacity building. Uh, so we're on the ground uh, at the external borders, uh, uh, helping to have more respectful uh, treatment of migrants, um, uh, irregular migrants who cross the European frontiers. We're looking right now with huge concern at the borders with Ukraine. We're expecting dramatic developments there in coming days. And we, we, we bring people together. We bring all those people that need to get together to fix human rights problems. We get them into the room to see if we can come up with smart new solutions. 
I'll pick up first of all on the broader theme there. What have you come across in terms of the use of AI, first of all, in our normal day-to-day life and what rights are in play there? Uh, even, even answering the question framed like that would be a massive understatement of what's going on. We're living through the greatest revolution in our societies since the Industrial Revolution. That's what AI is. It's, it's ubiquitous and it's transformative of everything. It's an importance which can be channeled massively for human well-being. We got those vaccines sorted out with COVID so fast because of the application of AI and all the related technologies. We haven't done a very good job of getting people vaccinated across the world, but the logistics were feasible because of the application of AI. You know, there'll there'll be cures for any number of diseases that are considered incurable today because of the extraordinary computing power uh, that we now have at our disposal. It's astonishingly important and, uh, as I say, must be framed as a positive. But at the same time, as with anything so important, it's massively risky. Uh, And from a human rights point of view, it engages every single human right in the book. It's obviously about fair policing. And we're going to come back to that kind of stuff, I guess, in a few minutes. But it's also about um, about social welfare. There was a big drama in Europe um, last year around um, the algorithm going wrong in terms of the, um, the payment of social welfare payments, uh, and they were they were recouped by the state uh, in a way that was completely improper and irregular because the the algorithm made mistakes uh, and it left people high and dry in terms of these basic entitlements uh, that they had. Uh, Distance learning is possible because of technology, uh, but uh, it was so unequal. Uh, If you were a Roma or a traveler child living in really bad conditions and you're told to distance learn, but you don't have a computer or you don't have the internet connection, where are you? As well, we have the issue of digital um, imbalances in terms of who has access to, for example, the internet. Uh, and, and how massively unequal that makes our societies. And by the way, it's not just about geography, rural, urban. It's not just about uh, rich, poor. It's also about young, old. I was speaking to a man the other day whose 100-year-old father has just had his pension entitlement system move online. And this man is supposed to navigate an online portal to get his pension. He's 100 years old. Uh, And so that's another demonstration of an inequality we have to pay attention to. So isn't going to go away. Massively important. Too big even for me to capture in words. But it's got to be watched with great attention so that it's a vehicle for human well-being and and not a a great risk to our rights. And I think that's that can be said for all, you know, the technology kind of argument in general, uh, like we've seen across COVID and even within the legal profession here, we've seen huge sweeping changes over the last two years. Um, we've now got remote court, remote prison visits and, um, you know, the implications that come with that sometimes um, they're changes for the good. But again, that they have to be really um, highly monitored so that there isn't some sort of um, negative or disadvantage to, to other groups on foot of that. So um, I, I think you're you're absolutely right there. And I, I'm I in terms of um, the kind of societal impact of um, artificial intelligence or AI. Um, I suppose in terms of what I'll bring you now to maybe policing, you mentioned predictive policing there. There, there, there was a recent example, I think, in Queensland um, 
you know, where they were using a, a type of algorithm, I suppose, to identify domestic violence offenders, for example, um, and, and the, you know, this knock on doors type approach before there was an escalation. To my mind, that just seems um, very out there in terms of the, the type of approach um, to policing. And obviously, it's not something that uh, we have experienced thus far in this jurisdiction. Is that something that you've come across? Yes, for sure. I don't know about the Queensland example, but of course, we see security forces and intelligence forces putting in play all manner of systems to to help them to do their jobs. A starting point for this discussion should be, of course, uh, the difference between law and ethics. Our job is to uh, engage the human rights law dimensions and help people navigate them so that they don't violate them. But there's a an added quality then of ethics about what's wise or stupid, what's proper or improper in a modern democratic society. And that adds a layer on top of the legal analysis that I'm going to give you now. Um, But coming back to human rights law, very few human rights are absolute. Um, uh, uh, Yeah, sure, there's the right not to be held in slavery, the right not to be tortured. These are absolutes. But after that, most human rights are subject to limitation for for articulated public goods, public health, public order, and the rights of others. Uh, So rights can be limited, uh, but the rule book is extremely strict for the limitation of those rights. That's exactly what comes into play with the uh, the use of these applications. So take one of these, um, take a remote surveillance application or remote biometric data monitoring application. We would not say that it is absolutely forbidden. Firstly, what's its purpose? Is its purpose a clearly demonstrated public good uh, within the frame set by the law, um, such as the prevention of of death? Uh, And, um, you know, and and if the high bar of uh, of delivery of public good is is passed, uh, then we have to make sure that the limitation of rights typically in this case, privacy rights, uh, that, they, that they're necessary and proportionate. Take again, remote biometric d- identification like a camera. Um, yeah, that limits your privacy for sure, but it can also inhibit who you speak with, who you meet with, where you go. So can it hit your assembly rights, your movement rights, and it can have a chilling effect. It, it, you know, the very fact that there's a camera there could mean I'm not even going to go there because, because I don't want uh, the, the consequences. So you, you, you have to make sure that these rule books are applied. This invariably triggers a requirement for strong oversight. Uh, and uh, we find typically, uh, time and time again, wherever rights have to be limited for a public good, that oversight can be neglected. For example, an oversight that focuses exclusively on protecting privacy uh, may be blind to all the other dimensions that could arise. It gets more, ever more complex because before we even get to the application of all these tests, we have to make sure that the data being absorbed and being processed by the technology is um, correctly gathered. There's a danger of mistakes being made, our data being incorrectly labeled, and then a sort of feedback loop uh, operating within the technology, whereby it's guaranteed not only to produce wrong outcomes, but to perpetuate the wrong outcomes or to make them ever worse. Uh, because the, the the initial errors or biases or whatever else haven't been picked up. You mentioned there are certain types of technology that would create difficulties, one of them being facial recognition. That seems to be something that's certainly been discussed a lot more now in, in terms of the, the impact it would have on, on fundamental rights. 
we could have said the same thing about CCTV and indeed we are saying the same thing about CCTV in, in some cases currently here in this jurisdiction. What have you found in terms of the use of facial recognition as a technology in policing terms? Facial recognition has its uses. Uh, of course it does. Where it's imperative to correctly identify uh, individuals such as crossing a frontier, it, it has a, a self-evident role. But facial recognition writ large raises very, very serious issues of human rights, not only with regards to whether it happens at all, but how it's then used uh, uh, or how it's interpreted. Remember, the viewer of facial recognition technology these days is typically an algorithm, not a human being. Uh, and um, so it's the algorithmic mind that you need to worry about. And if the algorithmic mind has formed a view, faces with one skin color are more likely to be to commit crime than another skin color, then you've got a really serious problem. Uh, this is the kind of stuff my agency is looking very closely at uh, to craft uh, roadmaps uh, so that the users of these technologies don't misstep. This gives me a chance to mention that we're in a really important moment in the EU in terms of the regulation uh, of, of, of this area. There's a, a the regulation negotiating its way through Brussels at the moment, the artificial intelligence regulation, which is going to be globally groundbreaking. It's like the, the GDPR. It's going to set the standard internationally. It's an impressive, ambitious uh, reach out to engage big tech across all the sectoral applications and put together a, a coherent oversight framework. And in that context, it creates hierarchies of risk. Uh, and applies different levels of rule and scrutiny depending on where uh, an application is on the risk uh, pyramid. Uh, and uh, I mention it here because uh, facial recognition uh, used in a security context, policing and security, is, 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 is deemed to be of such a high risk that it's given a, its own separate basket of protections. So there's a, there's a recognition that it's, it's an extremely sensitive area. And then you have um, banned Technologies, which are where, where it isn't even a risk of assessing um, risk, they're so inimical to uh, a, a modern democratic society that they can't be countenanced. Uh, these sort of technologies that, that, that mess with your emotions, that that um, that subliminally get you to to buy something, you know, they can never be good, can they? But it's a it's a it's a it's a really impressive effort, which which uh, I I think is going in a good direction and we'll, um, we'll set a roadmap, not only here in Europe, but right across the world. And in terms of those safeguards that would be in that type of legislation when dealing with, say, that very high risk of um, using things like um, facial recognition in a criminal justice con uh, um, context, that's obviously trying to combat the biases or prejudices that might be built in. And would those involve a technical way to, to combat those biases or other safeguards that might be used so as to filter the results, I suppose, of the algorithm? It's all of the above, as they say. The key is to make everything transparent. Every element of the machine has to be made evident. What is the purpose of the technology? Or what is the design of the technology? What does the training data look like? And on goes the list. Uh, these have to be out there so that we can determine what safeties are needed. Um, in some cases, it'll be a mechanical safety. You know, it'll be it'll be a, it'll be an adjustment to the design. In other cases, it, in addition, will need to be a human oversight. Remember, tech, big tech, AI is not some magical thing that fell from the heavens, ruled by the gods. It's designed by humans uh, for for human uh, uh, purposes, uh, and we've never we can't let the human off the hook. Uh, 
the higher we go in the risk pyramid, the more important it will be to, to keep the humans in the story and indeed to hold them accountable. And I, I suppose it's interesting, that idea that particular technology used for a very specific purpose, how it may be developed actually into something that it wasn't designed to do. For example, we see where, you know, there's a, an automated detection of, you know, sexual abuse material, for example. There's um, there's AI that that is, I suppose, developed for that purpose. But the concern is that that might open the door then to, I suppose, more nefarious type of surveillance or that would be used for a purpose that it wasn't actually developed for. That's right. You raised an interesting issue because um, a lot of these technologies that are being developed are are being developed by the private sector. Mm -hmm. And um, that raises a whole other issue uh, of um, the role of the private sector or indeed the role of the state in controlling the operation of the private sector. There's another really interesting piece of law and development in Europe, the Digital Services Act, which is having to deal with exactly these issues, recognizing that the private sector has a really important role in self-policing, for example, uh, uh, online content moderation, uh, but that that also has uh, uh, has to be carefully overlooked by the state and by authorities so that there isn't an abuse of rights, an excessive takedown, for example. If you encourage the private sector to self-police in terms of what content is on the platforms, there is a risk uh, of uh, of an invasion of such rights as freedom of expression. You know, crossing the line, because take the famous example, we don't have a right for people to be nice to us. Uh, In other words, you know, not all speech is hate speech that crosses a criminal law line, uh, but expecting the private sector to be vigilant on that demarcation is a big ask. And so while we need a voluntary engagement by the private sector, we have to keep a very close watch on it so that it doesn't go too far. I'm going to ask you now to talk about AI and access to justice. You've touched on a few different things, you know, for example, um, that whilst it might be better for some areas, for example, persons with disabilities might have more access to justice because of um, moves online and so on. But then for for other areas, it it develops a problem. Apart from those that we've already discussed in those kind of practical ways over COVID in particular, in terms of AI, have you seen any other access to justice issues arising? Oh, yeah, there's plenty. But I I come back to COVID again as well, because that was the primary learning space uh, for this. You know, that's really the context where we're all able to focus our attention. But um, we've seen stuff like uh, an inequality of arms, where um, one set of lawyers maybe of the state, uh, have all the tech and all the know-how and all the ability to navigate it to good outcomes. And there's some defense lawyer somewhere who's struggling with it all and isn't just isn't up to through lack of um, necessary skills or equipment or or whatever else. So we've seen that in a few places. We've seen um, we've seen issues of justice being done in public Uh, and Ireland, to its great credit, um, allowed um, uh, online access for journalists uh, to trials, I understand. And that's actually a, that's genuinely a good practice, which you wouldn't find in, in some other places in Europe. We have the issue of some of the apps that are being used uh, in, in the justice setting, uh, like uh, translation apps. Um, they seem like a great help to everybody and they, cost, they cut costs and all that. But we find commonly that they have difficulty with accents Uh, and with um, sort of diverse vocabularies. Uh, So if you come from a community where slang 
is 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 the is 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 a big part of your vocabulary. What you do when you're being interpreted by uh, by a technology that doesn't know the slang words, uh, and and you're mistranslated uh, possibly to your your prejudice. The same can happen, as I say, it's not just slang; it's also accent. So if you have an accent that the machine doesn't understand, uh, it's going to put in your mouth words you never said, and and, and again, that can obviously be a big disadvantage to you. Um, I could go on, I could go on. All those issues I mentioned at the beginning um, uh, about the relative familiarity or otherwise of different generations with the technology um, of, um, and this is a big issue, we've all suffered it, haven't we, uh, of unstable signals and how that can impact. How many people listening to us have been in a really important conversation online and they've, they've lost two minutes of it because the thing just shut up and went silent, uh, but the conversation continued. And so they spent the next 10 minutes trying to do catch up. Yeah, that's annoying in a conversation, but it can be devastating in a courtroom. Uh, uh, so we've learned a lot from COVID, um, which tells us that uh, let's continue with the use of AI in justice, but with extreme caution and uh, with, with a, a bigger awareness of the risks and the limitations. Automation is never going to replace the judge and the lawyers it's best understood as being potentially a tremendous aid to judges and lawyers. And I think that's an excellent point um, to wrap it up on. And Michael, I really appreciate you giving us your time uh, this afternoon and for explaining your work at the agency. So thank you very much. This podcast was produced by the Bar of Ireland for Justice Week 2022. For more information on Justice Week, follow us on Twitter at the Bar of Ireland. Thank you for listening. Thank you.